For this morning, our key scripture this morning comes from Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over there. And I will be reading that here for you this morning. We'll be in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is a passage about perspective. How we look at our lives, how we look at God, how we look at the way the world is. And it is trying to help us understand what we should see. In our lives, we face a million different obstacles. There are so many things that can go wrong Every day. And little things and big things, you know, have you ever just woken up, and I know you have, so it's really a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer. Have you ever woken up and just, it seems like from the very first step you take out of your bed, just things are not right. Maybe you're just a little off kilter that day. You know, and it's just you can't find your keys and you're out of what you were going to eat for breakfast and you get in the car and there's no gas in the car and just all these things go wrong all day long. I mean, that's just an average day, right? That's not even counting any bigger things that can happen. But we know that things are rarely easy. We struggle with a myriad of issues and at times we even suffer. Because life can be extremely hard. But we have been given a promise. That promise is that one day all of the suffering, all of the trouble, all of the hardship we face will cease and we will be set free from death and bondage and decay and restored completely when God makes all things new. You should say to that. This gives us hope, you see. Hope that there is more than all that this world has to offer. But just because we have hope, it doesn't really make things any 
easier. Hope allows us to hold our heads up, to cast our eyes beyond the pain, beyond the struggle that we face, but we still have to face that struggle. And we are still going to face opposition. And the thing is, church, that God knows this is true. That though we have hope, we are still in the middle of something. He knows how true our struggles are, and so Paul tells us here in Romans that the Spirit speaks to God for us from this place where we can't even hardly find the words to express what is going on. But then comes verse 28. It's a game changer. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. God has a purpose. He has something that He wants to accomplish and God has called us to be part of accomplishing this purpose. And therefore, no matter what happens, what suffering we face, God works for the good of those who love Him. And he does not take the suffering away. He does not make things easier. He does something that is better than that. I know that seems weird because what would we most love for him to do? To make it so that we don't have to suffer. But I'm telling you, God does something better than take our suffering away. He takes what is wrong what is going to be wrong, what may always be wrong, and he changes it into something that can be used by him for good. Our God redeems. Our God redeems. Taking what is broken and making it whole again. And this is a unique perspective. It does not say that God gives us something so that we can learn a lesson. It does not say that God puts us in a situation so we will become something else. Instead, it says that no matter what is going on, God is capable of redeeming that thing. This is the God that I need. Not the God that fixes all my problems, but the God that redeems What is wrong in my life? What would it be like if we stopped asking God to take all the hard things away from us and we started asking God to redeem what is broken in and around us? How would this change us as a people? All right, if you have a, a bulletin somewhere around you uh, right now, I'd like you to open it up. There were several pieces of paper, extra pieces of paper in your bulletin today. Um, uh, one of them is the education survey that Wayne mentioned earlier. We're just looking uh, for a little bit of input there in terms of what we offer and when we offer it and what you might like to uh, learn about. So. Uh, Be sure to fill that out. There is a basket in the foyer in the back. If you want to drop it in there before you leave today, that would be super helpful. Uh, The other thing you have is this sheet here, uh, front and back. Uh, These are the scriptures broken down for each week as we go through the story. 
Um, as, as those of you who have been here know, uh, we're not covering each, um, each and every chapter and each and every verse as we go through. We're kind of, we're taking a higher, uh, view look at this whole thing. So this should be very helpful for you in terms of what exactly we're covering. And, um, just so you know, uh, within within each sermon in particular, uh, I may not cover every one of those chapters um, because in the interest of time, uh, even I have to reduce from this down to something a little bit smaller. Uh, but take a look at this. This can help you uh, as you and, and my greatest recommendation would actually be that you put this on your refrigerator, uh, you hang it up somewhere in the house and um, read it during the week before the sermon. So if you read these chapters uh, before you come in uh, on Sunday, then you'll be ready to go for, for whatever it is that we're, we're going to be looking at that week. So I hope that's helpful for you. <clears throat> so here we are in, in week three of the story. And um, for those of you who haven't been here, let me explain really quick uh, what we're doing here. The story is taking us through the Bible, which is God's story. Uh, and we're going to be doing this uh, this journey over 31 weeks. Uh, and it's going to encourage us to look at the Bible as one big overarching story to recognize the themes that we see in the story and to see ourselves in the story. And as I've mentioned a couple of times now, this requires us to read Scripture in a slightly different way. Uh, we tend to approach uh, the Word of God and to approach our Scripture as... As a study, we are looking for um, instructions and, and ways to live our lives, answers to problems. Uh, it's kind of like it's a manual for us to live. And this is true of Scripture and of God's Word. It is a manual. It does tell us how to live our lives. But it's not only that. Um, it, is a, it is also a narrative, and it's filled with all kinds of different stories. Big stories, little stories, amazing stories, and they all come together to form one big consistent story from the creation all the way to the return of Jesus. So, again, as we approach uh, our story this week, um, we are trying to come at it from a slightly different angle. So we are looking for different things. We are, it's a story with characters. So who are the people? What is going on in their lives? Uh, number two, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. There are things that are going to happen in each section that are going to tell us more about these characters and that are going to further what the story is about. And our task is to recognize what is going on in the story, how it's moving forward, and more importantly, what the story is about. So, we've had two weeks, right? We have covered a ton of ground in those two weeks, right? I mean, that's one of the, maybe, as the person who is actually preparing this for you, um, we are covering a lot of ground each time. And so, I, I think, I hope, <laughs> you're doing a great job of following along uh, with me, I think. I, I think you're with me each time. So, uh, at the first week we looked at Genesis chapters 1 through 9, uh, the whole creation story and through the story of Noah. And we learned that in the big story, there are three main characters. There is God, there is mankind, and there is the tempter, uh, the one who would pull man away from God. And, and the storyline, the plot that we saw in, in these first nine chapters are this, that God uh, is 
above all, before all, over all things. He existed before time, before anything was created. We saw that God lovingly created the world and that he then lastly created man to be in relationship with him. However, man rebelled and chose to disobey God. They fell under the influence of the one who was working to pull them away from the God who loves them. And God had to respond to this situation. He couldn't just leave it like it was. He had to judge because he had been rejected. He had been treated as one who is not God. But even though he had to judge and he had to send man out of the garden, he still left a door open for redemption. And God deeply desires for his relationship with humanity to be restored. And though he is hurt, he constantly works to this end. So last week, we saw how God transitioned out of this creation and things falling apart kind of over and over again to decide that he is going to create his own nation amongst all the people. He's going to, from where with Noah before, he decided to sort of have this hard reset. He's going to start all over and just start with this one family, and they would be the representatives of his people here on earth. This time he says, okay, I can't do that again, so instead, out of all the people on the earth, I'm going to call one group out to be my people. So he calls Abraham and Sarah, and he asks them to go, and he went through their whole journey of faith, of discovering who God is, about what it is like to have to trust God. And we saw that God is both the maker and the keeper of promises. He calls them out, but he tells them exactly what he is going to do for them, that he is going to make Abraham and Sarah into a great nation. And we saw that faithfulness on our part means that we need to have so much confidence in God that we need to act as if whatever it is that God wants to do is actually already done, even if we don't see how it happened. And we see that so much with Abraham and Sarah who had to go and, and, and do these different things and, and had, to, had to step out in faith without the knowledge of where they were going or how God was going to accomplish this through them. And they had this tendency to want to take things into their own hands to help God accomplish what he wanted to, but God kept guiding them back to let him do it. We also saw that from the time we took our first bite of the fruit in the garden, struggle became a part of our story. That it is not easy, this path that God takes. And God chooses difficult ways to accomplish what, he is that he, what it is that he wants to accomplish. He called Abraham and Sarah when they were really old. How old were they? 75. When they left, how old were they when they had Isaac? About a hundred. So we see that God is doing things in this way that is not really the way that we would do it. That is a difficult and a hard way. And we see that struggle is a part of this story. But we also see that struggle does not define us for our God who is a God who blesses us when we cling to him. Amen. And lastly, there we go. There's an Amen. And lastly, in order to truly belong to God, we have to allow him to change who we are. He has to change our names from one who is too old to one who is already the father of a great nation, from one who struggles to one who prevails. So that brings us up to speed. So where are we story-wise? Well, here's where we are. We have Jacob, whose name was changed to, to Israel. 
We have his family. And finally, we actually have a whole bunch of kids to talk about. All right, so we're finally there where, there, where there is a big family that is growing. But we know that God wants to create what? A nation. And he's still just got one family. Even though there's a lot of them, it's still just one family. So they're not yet a nation. But what happens next in the story takes it in a completely different direction than what we saw happen with Abraham. Abraham had this struggle where he didn't know what was going to happen and he had to step out in faith and allow God to work through him and guide him and lead him. And the biggest struggle that we see Abraham have, as I already said, is this sort of push and pull between him wanting to help God accomplish uh, what God is going to accomplish and letting God do it how God wants to do it. And so there's this back and forth, this back and forth between them. But here's the thing. When you read the story of Abraham, and if you go through and you read it verse by verse, you see that as long as Abraham follows God, everything goes his way. In fact, there are times when Abraham doesn't follow God and things still go his way. An example of that would be when they were traveling and sort of going where no one knows. And, you, you know, they, they, uh, they go into Egypt and Sarah attracts the attention of uh, Pharaoh and is actually brought into Pharaoh's house because she's this wonderful woman. And uh, Abraham makes her pretend that, that she's his sister so that they don't get in trouble. It's like, if well, if Pharaoh wants you, there you go. Sarah had to love that whole conversation. Right? That just had to be a really wonderful moment in their marriage. <laughs> well, he's Pharaoh. So, so she goes in there, and God actually causes calamity <laughs> in their house and sends Sarah back and says, why didn't you just tell me that she was your wife? Right? So we have these moments where Abraham pulls back, where he doesn't trust God, but as long as he follows God, and even sometimes when he doesn't, God makes everything work out for him, Right? I mean, he is a blessed man. Sarah is a blessed woman. Their family, the way is just paved for them. And honestly, I, I think I would be a lot more comfortable if this is how things worked in my life as well. If God would just make the way straight and flat and smooth for me. I mean, okay, God, you can test me. I know, that's a dangerous thing to say, right, Don Roberts? Sure, go ahead. and You tested Abraham, it's only fair, but can you just make everything else smooth? And that way I can get there. But in the story that we're going to look at today, which is the story of Joseph, we see almost the complete opposite thing happen. God has something he wants to accomplish, so we have to keep this in mind, Right? This is the underlying thing that's happening throughout here. God wants to create a nation of his own people that belong to him. He wants to make Abraham's descendants into a nation. But right now they're just a family. And he is going to accomplish this big step, the next big thing, through the life of one particular person within the family again. And that person is Joseph. But here's the change in the story. At every turn, Joseph faces trouble. He faces hardship. 
something gets in his way. Other people, the things around him, his circumstances, all these, he finds himself in these terrible situations. And this was not so much God making the way flat as it was God throwing boulders in the way or allowing boulders to be in the way or making the way rocky and steep. We, We don't know, but the path that Joseph takes is so different than the path that Abraham took. In accomplishing his will, we would like for God to travel in a straight line. We would love for him to wake to make the way smooth. But I think we can all agree that the way to accomplishing God's work in our lives is not smooth. The question, though, is why? Why is it not smooth? Why does God just not make things happen like he did for Abraham? I think sometimes it's us. Well, I think a lot of times it's us. So let's just be truthful. We don't listen or we stick to our own way. We're not really sometimes interested in what God wants us to do as much as we are in what we would like for God to do. But other times, there are things that keep coming up, setbacks and trouble. We already know from the story that there is one who is working in the world to pull us away from God, right? Sometimes it seems like we cannot take one step forward in accomplishing something for God without taking three steps back. And the story of Joseph tells just such a story. But the story of Joseph is a precursor for all that God is going to do. It tells us something crucial about God and how he works through the trouble we both create and find ourselves surrounded by. So let's jump in. The first thing we have to realize, again, is that God wanted to fulfill his promise, but the descendants of Abraham kind of made things difficult for God to do that. Okay, so the first thing we see is that the descendants of Abraham kind of get in the way of what God wanted to do. Where does this start? Well, it starts in a weird place. It starts with polygamy. It does. It starts with polygamy, which is marriage with uh, multiple wives. And you don't read very far throughout the Bible before you find this popping up. We even saw it a little bit in the story of um, Abraham and Sarah, right? Where Sarah offered Hagar to to have a child on her behalf. And when she did that, what what happened? What was the result of that? There was a child... And Sarah and Hagar hated each other, right? And it didn't work out. And so God changes the path for them. But in the lead up to the story of Joseph, we see that Jacob, who is now Israel, has put himself into a particular situation. Number one, he has married two different women. He has married Rachel and he has married Leah. Now, it's not 100% his fault, okay, He was tricked into marrying Leah first when he really wanted to marry Rachel. But so he ends up marrying both of them in the end. But there's a problem, right? And that is this. He really, really loves Rachel. And he was tricked into marrying Leah. I feel terrible for Leah. I really do. 
she is. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I don't want. To, I don't want to go there. And then both Leah and Rachel shared their maids with them, just like Sarah had offered to do, who were Billa and Zilpah. So, for the most part, Israel has four wives. Okay, and the clearest response to this idea being present in the Bible is that the believers, the followers of God, were not faithful to what God's original intention for marriage actually was. Yet, God still used them to accomplish what it was that he wanted to accomplish. But still, all sin has consequences. And the fruit of their unfaithfulness in marriage is seen everywhere throughout the Old Testament. You see, this is true, you see a lot of things break down in the Old Testament because marriages are either carried out in the wrong sort of way or they fall apart. You see a lot of trouble from that. Um, But we're not preaching about marriage today. (laughs) We'll get to that another time. And the, what, what we see happening in the story is that the practice of polygamy or sharing a servant or whatever it is, it brought ungodly tension and competition between wives and that was often passed on to the children. And this was certainly the case in the story of Joseph. Because Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And Leah had sons. She had more sons than Rachel did. But Rachel had one at the time that our story starts. And that son was Joseph. And because Israel loved Rachel the most, Joseph became his favorite son. And Joseph had a ton of older brothers who were not particularly happy with the fact that this younger son was getting all of the attention. But He just loved Joseph more. Joseph was the product of this loving relationship and not this relationship he had been tricked into. So he treated Joseph differently. He honored him more. He gave him gifts that he did not give to his other sons, including the coat of many colors. You can go watch the musical sometime. (laughs) And then Joseph started having dreams. And he had these visions that his brothers were going to bow down to him. And then Joseph, who is a pretty remarkable character, but is incredibly dumb at the beginning of this story, shares with his brothers the dreams that he has had. That all his brothers would bow down to him. That all his brothers would show him how important he is, that he would be honored above all of them. And for some reason, which I can't figure out, his brothers get angry about this. They don't like the fact that Joseph has said, you are all going to bow down to me because I am the man. Right? He just, they, don't, they don't like this. So there was a great deal of tension in the family and this tension came to a boiling point. This place that, I don't know if it should surprise us or not. Because remember, what is the history we have seen between God and God's people? They come close to him, they follow him as we saw through Abraham, but then what quickly starts to happen? Right? They start to split off from him. Our first passage from today. Now his brothers had gone to graze their flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, 
As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Now, do you notice something already? All of his brothers are where? They're gone, working, taking care of the animals in the field. Where is Joseph? He's at home with dad. Then he sent him off for the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Right? Now, some of you have siblings, and I get that your response is probably like, man, I get that. I get that. But on the other hand, uh, let's be reasonable for a moment. These are God's people. Remember, out of all of humanity, out of all of mankind, these are the people that he has called out. And what kind of people are they? Petty? Violent, jealous, angry? I mean, this, it's a little crazy, right? That they see him, they see they have an opportunity because they're way out in the middle of nowhere and their response is, so let's kill him. And this is very nearly what they did. When Joseph found his brothers, they ganged up on him and they were going to kill him and throw him into a well and leave him there. But Reuben, the oldest uh, sort of became the, the very strange voice of reason. <laughs> Let's not kill him, Reuben says. Let's just sell him into slavery. Oh, well, that's a good idea, right? Because keep in mind, now they're not just going to kill him and get rid of him. They're going to profit off of him. But Reuben does act out of some sense of obligation. We can't just kill our brother, so let's just sell him off. And so there were slavers that were passing by, and so they sold Joseph into slavery. And then they took his special coat, they ripped it up, they put animal blood on it, they went back to their father and said, our brother has been killed by a wild animal, he's dead. Their father mourns. And here they watched their father mourn for the brother that's still alive. God's people, everyone. Right? It feels like we are going down the same road we have been down over and over again. And if you're just following the narrative, there is a question that might pop into your mind at this point. Is God going to have to start over again? Like, if these descendants are going to be God's nation, is he going to have to start over again? And the answer is a very clear no. But the reason is interesting. God made a promise. And God is going to keep his promise, even if the people are a bunch of idiots. Seriously. He's going to keep his promise. 
He made a promise to Abraham that Abraham and his descendants would become a great nation, that God would be faithful to him, that they would be his people and he would be their God. And he is going to keep that promise. And it is at this moment that this story that seems to be going down the same road we have seen all through the beginning of the Bible takes a shift. That the story changes. But this is important. Where before, one of the primary emphases of the story had been the failure of humanity and God's response to that failure. You failed, so I must punish. You failed, so I must start over. You failed, so I must do this or that. Instead, we see that God does something completely different. God uses the obstacles that others try to put in his way to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Let me say that one more time. God uses the obstacles that others try to put in his way to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. He wants a nation. He wants them to be the descendants of Abraham. And even though they are totally messing this up, He is going to see this through. And so therefore, he is going to use what they do for something better. He's going to use what they do for something better. They may get in the way, but God is still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. They may get in the way, but he is still going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Because he is God. And he will not fail. And his purposes will happen. So listen to what happens next. You know the story. You know, it's so hard when you know the story so well to let yourself hear it fresh in a fresh and new way. But, but think about where we are. And listen to what happens next. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. Say that with me. The Lord was with Joseph. You're going to see this phrase repeated over and over again. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. (laughs) What did Potiphar worry about? Chewing. That's what Potiphar worried about. That was all he thought about. God was with Joseph. His brothers hated him. They sold him into slavery, but God was with Joseph. And because God was with Joseph, when Potiphar buys Joseph, he's still a slave, okay? He's still a slave, but he was blessed because Joseph was in his house. Do you remember what God originally promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? I will bless you, and through you others will be blessed. 
And because God is with Joseph, Potiphar's house is blessed. And God is keeping his promise. And this young man from a different country, who probably doesn't even speak the language, rises up to run the entire household to where Potiphar doesn't think about anything but chewing. It's amazing that this happens. But it happens for one reason, which is what? God was with Joseph. That's the reason why this happens. But Joseph can't catch a break. You would think, like, this would be a pretty big accomplishment for a slave's lifetime. To rise, to run his master's household. But Joseph can't catch a break. And he was a good-looking guy, and Potiphar's wife noticed this. She was the lady of the house, and Joseph was still a slave. And so she propositioned him, and he turned her down. And she didn't like that. So she propositioned him again, and he ran from the room without his clothes. Ran from the room to get away from her. So now she's standing there, having been rejected by a slave, and she's holding his robe in her hand. And so Potiphar comes home and she tells him, your servant tried to rape me. Look, I've got his robe right here. And what can Potiphar do? Well, nothing. He's got to believe that this slave tried to take advantage of his wife. I mean, after all, he's a slave. And he got too far ahead of himself. And he tried to take something that wasn't his. And so Joseph is thrown into jail. That's pretty rough. I mean, think about it. Twice now, you have been very falsely put into this position by your family and now, and, and what have you really done wrong? Okay, so at first you, you were kind of you know, mean to your brother. It's a little bit arrogant, sure, but that doesn't, that's not a death sentence, right? That's not deserving of being put into slavery, and he just can't catch a break, right? Wrong! Wrong! Turns out that going to prison was a great move for Joseph. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden, the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held there in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no, no, I'm sorry. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. He gets to Potiphar's house and Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything but chewing. He gets to prison and the Lord is with him and so the warden, whose job is to do what? Be in charge of the prison. Puts Joseph in charge of the prison. And what does the warden do? Nothing! As far as we know, he lives a completely sedentary life. He may not even chew. He may drink his food. That's, we don't even know. He may do less than Potiphar at this point. But he puts a prisoner in charge of the prison and then doesn't think about it again. Because God is with Joseph. And Joseph can seemingly do no wrong. Uh, he gets in there and God is with him and blesses him. 
And here's the weird thing. God has Joseph exactly where he wants him to be. In prison. Because while he's in prison, he meets two guys. And these two guys have both had dreams. And they ask Joseph to interpret their dreams. One was the cupbearer for the king. The other was the baker. So he interprets their dreams. One had a good ending, one had a bad ending. And the cupbearer was restored and went back to serving the king directly. And he had promised Joseph that he would tell the king, this, this man, you know, he's in there, you need to have him out, he's a wonderful guy, he interpreted my dream. But the cupbearer gets to the king and what does he promptly do? Forgets about Joseph for two years. For two years. So Joseph spends two more years in prison until Pharaoh has a dream. And then the cupbearer says, you had a dream. I know a dream guy. I got a guy. He does dreams. Right? When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him, so Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph said to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. So what does Joseph tell him? Well, he tells him that there's going to be a famine that's coming to the earth. A severe famine. People were going to starve and die unless something was done about it. If nothing was done about it, it not only would Egyptians die, but who else would die? Israel and his family. Okay, They would die too. And God had a promise to keep. So he interprets the dream and he says there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And then God gives Joseph a plan. If they spent the next seven years saving up their resources, then they could have enough to help the world survive the famine. I mean, think about this for a second. This is what we're talking about, the known world at the time. To help the world survive the famine. Now, Remember that Joseph came from prison to make this proclamation. And what did he need to do first? He had to shave, clean up, and change his clothes. Because where was he? So don't fool yourselves for a second. He was in charge, but he was still in prison. And what happens next is nothing short of bananas. (laughs) Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took a signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, make way. Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Do you notice a pattern here? Potiphar doesn't have to worry about anything but chewing. The warden can lay down for the rest of his life. And when he meets Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh recognize? God is with you. And in response to that recognition, what does he do? He gives him Egypt. The empire of Egypt is going to answer to Joseph. And even though the language is different, the implication is the same. Is, is uh, Pharaoh going to worry about anything? No. You take care of this. The entire nation is going to answer to you. Because God is with you. The entire country. So Joseph puts this plan into action. <laughs> what are his qualifications for this? God is with him. That's it. Those are his qualifications that God is with him. And now he's in charge of a country. And he puts a plan into action to store up food so that the known area at the time can survive the most severe famine that the world has ever known. And it works. Because God was with him. And his family, as it happens, had to come to Egypt to get food because there was a famine and there was no food left anywhere in the world. It was running out. And so two years into this thing, his family has to go to Egypt to get food from the storehouses. And Joseph recognizes his brothers. Now, what did his brothers do to him again? Joseph messes with them a little bit. Let's just be straight. Like he, he <laughs> it's a little cat and mouse thing. He just bats them around a little bit. It's it's helpless fun, right? Or hurtless. Well, how do you know what I'm trying to say? But it is Joseph himself when he talks to his brothers. He tells us what this whole story is about. So listen to this. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? <laughs> but his brothers were not able to answer him, because they were terrified at his presence. Yeah, they were. Can you imagine this person has, is the most powerful person in the most powerful nation in the world and you've had to come to him to beg for resources to survive and then you realize it's your brother who you tried to, were going to kill but sold into slavery? That's a, that's a clarifying moment right there. It's <laughs> a clarifying moment. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph. Now listen to this. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth 
and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay, don't delay. you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have, I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. I'm amazed by Joseph. But there's a few things I want you to consider. Number one, I don't think that Joseph probably had this perspective when he was sold into slavery. I, I, I just have a hard time believing that. I I don't know that he had this perspective when he was accused of rape and thrown into prison. Or when he was forgotten and left in jail. But somewhere along the line, Joseph learned something very important about God. And that is this. God is more than capable of taking something that others may intend to be bad and using that something for good. More than capable. And you know what's weird? In the end, it does not matter at all to the story what Joseph's brothers intended. It doesn't matter at all what Potiphar's wife intended. It doesn't matter at all that the cupbearer forgot. The only thing that matters is that at every step of the way, God put Joseph in the place he needed him to be. He used what was supposed to destroy him to save lives. To save lives. To save the world from starving. Now, okay, couldn't God have just... Sure, God could have just... But he didn't. But he still kept all of his promises. And he still did exactly what he said he was going to do. God is more than capable of taking, that something, of taking something that others intend to be bad and using that for good. And there is a word for this. For taking something that is rejected, something that is thrown away, something that is used up, and raising that thing to a place of importance. Do you know what that word is? Redemption. The word is redemption. Joseph's story is a story of redemption. It is the story of how God keeps his promises, and it's a story of how God does not let anything get in his way. And it is a story of, of how God saved the world through one sold off, falsely accused, imprisoned, and forgotten man. We would love for things to be easier. I'm sure Joseph would have also loved for things to be easier. 
We would love the path to be straight. And we would love for all the obstacles to be removed. But that is not our story. Our story is better than that. Our story is that we face all of the things that everyone else faces. That we face the struggles, the hardships, and all that we have, but where everyone else walks around having to just live with that, our God redeems those things. So that the brokenness, the hurt, the failure, the rejection no longer define us. They are not the story. The story is about how our God overcomes those things in our lives and changes us forever. There is no reason why Joseph should have been in that place. But God took what was meant to break him and used it to raise him up to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish and to save as many lives as possible. It's remarkable. It's a remarkable story. Our God takes what would stop us on our own if we were left to our own devices and he uses it to accomplish what he needs to accomplish in this world. Some things I want you to remember. Number one, God keeps his promises even when we get in the way. Hallelujah. Number two, God does not keep bad stuff from happening to us. But God is capable of using the bad to accomplish something really good. And number three, in so doing this, God changes our story. Like Abraham and Jacob before us, he changes our names. We are not lost, but we are found. We are not condemned, but we are saved. We are redeemed. And God, the great redeemer of Joseph, and the great redeemer of you, was just getting started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this story, which is an incredible story, and what it tells us about who you are and all that you've done. God, we face so many obstacles, things that would pull us away from you. But God, we are grateful that you are the redeemer of all things, that you are capable of changing what is bad to something that is good, that you are capable of using our brokenness for your strength. Father, may we know that we are redeemed. And may that be the story that we tell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have any needs for prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.